ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Monday the 29th of January. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. The United States is vowing reprisals after three American troops were killed and dozens wounded in a drone attack in Jordan near the border with Syria. President Joe Biden is blaming Iranian-backed militias for the attack. Our North America correspondent, Carrington Clark, is in Washington. Carrington, what do we know about the attack? Well, we received a statement from the US President Joe Biden. He says, today America's heart is heavy. Last night, three US service members were killed and many wounded during an unmanned aerial drone attack on our forces stationed in northeast Jordan near the Syria border. While we are still gathering the facts of this attack, we know it was carried out by radical Iran-backed militant groups operating in Syria and Iraq. Now, it is still early days. They are still assessing exactly what damage was done. But in addition to the three service members that are have been killed, there are reports that up to 34 US service members have also been injured. And this is the first deadly drone strike against US forces in the region since the Israel-Hamas war erupted at the beginning of October. And the concern, of course, now is that this is a potential escalation point. What other response has there been in the United States? Well, many of uh, the Republican opponents of Joe Biden have seized on this attack as evidence uh, that he has lost, is losing the war against Iran, a proxy war that is currently being fought. Uh, we have heard from Tom Cotton, who's a Republican US senator from Arkansas. He says the only answer to these attacks must be devastating military retaliation against Iran's terrorist forces, both in Iran and across the Middle East. And even on the Democratic side, we heard from Jackie Rosen, who's a US senator from Nevada. He said Iran must be held accountable. Correspondent Carrington Clark there. There are usually about 3,000 American troops stationed in Jordan, which is a staunch Western ally. The kingdom borders Israel, Iraq, Saudi Arabia and Syria, and for a long time, the US has used Jordan as a basing point in the Middle East. For more on this story, I was joined a short time ago by our global affairs editor, John Lyons, who's in Jerusalem. John, how is this attack on an American base being viewed in the Middle East? Sabra, in the Middle East here, it's being seen as a definite and a dangerous escalation of the conflict. Up until now, it's largely been Israel and Gaza. Then it was Hezbollah in the north of Israel. But it's now, this is a definite escalation because this is the first time Jordan, a neighbour of Israel, has been involved. The first time there's been an attack into Jordan. And the first time that there's been a direct attack by Iran onto the US that has led to casualties. Three American soldiers dead, as many as 24 or 30 injured. So it's definitely seen as a dangerous escalation of tensions here. And what's Iran's endgame? Up until now, Iran's largely been using its proxies. and But now we're seeing Iran's increasing aggression. Its tentacles, if you like, are spreading. The last two weeks alone, we've seen Iran make attacks into northern Iraq. They've attacked into Syria, then Pakistan, and now Jordan. Now, this is clearly Iran is no longer just using its proxies of Hamas, Hezbollah and the Houthis. It is now making direct attacks on U.S. targets. And the U.S., of course, has said that it will respond. That's why this is such a dangerous escalation of this conflict. 
John, the US had been putting so much effort into making sure the war in Gaza doesn't spread. This is a setback. What happens now? Well, the war in Gaza is going on to its fourth month soon, and it's impossible really to contain that. That conflict is feeding so much else. For example, the Houthis were not making attacks into the Red Sea before the Gaza war. They say that they will stop once the Gaza war is over. But what this conflict with Gaza is doing is it's feeding a lot of these other tensions. Hezbollah on the north of Israel is becoming increasingly aggressive with some of its missile attacks into Israel. Now we're seeing Iran. It's made dozens and dozens of attempted attacks on US facilities in the region. This is the very first time, from their point of view, this would be seen as a success. In Tehran today, they would be thinking that this was a victory, and having got one, they're most likely to want to get more. Global Affairs Editor John Lyons there in Jerusalem. While there's relief along Queensland's coast that Cyclone Kiralee didn't cause major damage, it's still dumping significant and widespread rain in the state's west. Some farmers are welcoming the deluge, while others are disappointed they've missed out so far, as Annie Guest reports. As North Queenslanders braced for Cyclone Kiralee, hundreds of kilometres away, graziers like Trina Patterson hoped it'd bring much-needed rain. We thought that we would end up with good rain initially um, from the forecast initially, but then, you know, then they sort of said, oh, but the rain was going to the northern side of the cyclone and not to the southern, and then it was, you know, the cyclone was going to go out into the Territory, and I thought, oh, well, that's it, we're done. And even as the ex-cyclone's path shifted again, the cattle and crop farmer from near Rolleston in central Queensland remained pessimistic. I'd heard that the cyclone was going to do a U-turn, but I thought it was going to be more rain out in the Channel Country. And I was sort of quite concerned that we were going to miss out and um, didn't expect to have the rain that we had. Um, it was beautiful thunderstorm rain. It rolled through. Um, no, it's it's really, really good. How much of a sense of, of relief comes with rain like this? Oh, heaps, heaps. Back in um, 2018, 2019, you know, that was our driest time here. Um, in the time that we've been here in Bottle Tree Downs. And, you know, I, I don't want to go back to that time again. Um, so it's just always great to have that security of, you know, full soil profile, um, full dams, happy cattle, um, beautiful grass, as far as the eye can see, to, to ease that worry over, um, over water. Yeah, it's just fantastic. Others, like cattle farmer Louise Martin, are hoping her property near Tambo in central western Queensland will get more than the six millimetres it had had when she spoke to AM. I do know that we're not the only people. There's lots of pockets in Queensland who have completely missed out uh, and I'm not, I'm not the only one. But uh, it, it is tough when, uh, you know, long-term droughts so still so fresh in your mind. Her property was drought declared from 2013 until just last year. It's still very close in our in our minds and our memories, and there's still that sort of trepidatious feel of, oh, it's raining. It seems to be raining everywhere, but not here. Is it ever going to rain again? And uh, unconsciously, I think anxiety levels um, build up a bit, uh, especially when the rain has been falling not too far from here. And, and surrounds. 
but she remains optimistic ex-tropical cyclone Kiralee might yet deliver enough water to fill dams and complete a full recovery from drought. Meanwhile, in Townsville, electricity crews have been working to reconnect tens of thousands of customers who've been without power in heatwave conditions since the cyclone. Annie Guest reporting. The first of four men jailed in connection with South Australia's notorious Snowtown Bodies in the Barrels murders is expected to be released from custody within months. Mark Ray Hayden was never found guilty of any of the murders, but he was jailed for 25 years for assisting the convicted killers. Legal experts say there may be no way to keep him behind bars, as Rebecca Bryce reports. The discovery of decomposing bodies in barrels in a disused bank vault in Snowtown in 1999 shocked the nation and forever tainted the small town about 150 kilometres north of Adelaide. Four men were found guilty, three were jailed for life. The fourth, Mark Ray Hayden, was convicted for helping the killers hide and move the bodies. He could be freed in May when his 25-year sentence comes to an end. Sarah Quick, who's the Commissioner for Victims' Rights in South Australia, says it's confronting for the families and friends of the victims. I would say it's it's a very universal view um, that they would prefer he was never to be released, um, but they understand the law and because I've spoken with them over a number of years, uh, they've come to terms with the fact that his sentence does end in May. But it is a a difficult adjustment for them. 11 people were murdered between 1992 and 1999 in what became known as the Bodies in the Barrels killings. James Marcus is a Criminal Law Committee member of the South Australian Law Society. Under the existing laws as we understand them in South Australia or indeed in Australia, um, once a person has completed the sentence that was imposed upon them, then they are released from custody. And he says Mark Ray Hayden could walk free with no conditions on his release. So when a court imposes a sentence, typically they impose what's often called a head sentence, being the appropriate term of imprisonment to be imposed for that offence, and often a non-parole period, which is typically half to three quarters of the sentence, which is the minimum period that the court determined that person had to serve before they are eligible for parole. If the person receives parole, or if they don't, when their head sentence expires, Ordinarily, they are then released into the community. A 2017 parole bid was knocked back. Three years ago, Hayden applied again and is still waiting for a response. James Marcus says the South Australian Attorney-General could ask the Supreme Court to define Hayden as a high-risk offender when he's released from prison. If he met that definition, then the attorney could make an application for an extended supervision order, which would impose conditions that would largely mirror parole, such as controlling where a person lives, where they can go, who they can and can't associate with, and can include electronic monitoring, which is wearing uh, what are often called a home detention bracelet. In a statement, the Malinowskis government says it's seeking legal advice in the Hayden case. It points out it's strengthened laws around concealing or interfering with human remains since coming to power two years ago, in recognition of the lasting harm victims suffer. Victims' Rights Commissioner Sarah Quick says the pain is still raw for the families and friends of the victims. They've suffered and continue to suffer unimaginable trauma. Uh, Many still suffer from nightmares, PTSD, lack of motivation. Many remain fearful and they find it very difficult to trust people, to let people into their into their lives. So there is a sense of isolation for many of the victims. They very much feel that they've been given a life sentence 
that their pain and their trauma doesn't subside. Two of the convicted killers were jailed for life without parole. A third will be eligible for parole next year. Rebecca Bryce reporting. Six years after the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse delivered its final report, concerns linger about how one religious organisation is dealing with allegations. The Jehovah's Witnesses made a commitment to the Commission to report child sexual abuse claims to police. But as Brianna Fiore reports, the church is still dealing with historical abuse cases behind closed doors. And a warning, this story may be distressing for some listeners. <laughs> In her suburban backyard, Kezi Witten plays with her young son. Yeah, go the other way now. All right, ready? Hold on. It's a happy moment, far from the memories of when she was five and her 18-year-old brother, Joel Witten, began to sexually abuse her. The abuse continued for five years. He should have been hurting for me, not hurting me. Nothing like that should have happened to a child, ever. The now 34-year-old from regional Western Australia grew up in the Jehovah's Witness Church. When she was in her early teens, she told her mum about the abuse. Her mother said Kezia should report it to church elders, but the teen didn't want to do that, nor did they go to police. It wasn't until 2018, after the Royal Commission had delivered its final report, that Kezia confronted her brother. He then confessed to church elders. However, court documents show the religious leaders did not report the matter to police. Eventually, Kezia went to police. Her brother was charged in 2022, pleaded guilty and was jailed late last year. It's so hard to get out and start talking about this. It is so overwhelming, it's so exhausting at first for a lot of people. It, it makes you feel like you're going crazy and you can literally forget how to talk when you're actually trying to deal with all this stuff and trying to use your voice for the first time. In a statement, a spokesperson for the Jehovah's Witness Church says it can't comment on the specifics of the case but can't be responsible for what happens in the home, adding that the church does not condone, conceal or shield those who are alleged to have committed abuse. Is the church doing enough to combat sex abuse? No way. They're not doing the right job at all. WA's mandatory reporting laws means religious organisations don't have to report historical abuse which occurred before 2022. Asked whether she thinks the law should be changed, the State Minister for Child Protection, Sabine Winton, says mandatory reporting is intended to protect children now, rather than to address historical abuse. Kezia Witten wants that to be changed. And in the meantime, she's found a new passion... I love candle making. It's helped me heal, I think, because it's bringing out my creative side and helping me look at the world a bit more colourful. Making her determined to help other survivors too. Brianna Fiore reporting. And if you're in an abusive situation or you know someone who is, you can call 1800RESPECT. That's 1800 737 732. If it's an emergency, call triple zero. Electric vehicles are slightly becoming more popular in Australia. Car figures, car sales figures, sorry, during the past 12 months show 87,000 were sold. But there's another alternative to petrol and diesel that isn't gaining much ground. That's hydrogen cars. Just six were imported into the country last year. Business reporter Amelia Turzon prepared this report. So we're doing a general patrol today. We're just checking our fence line, looking out for any persons that don't fit into the area. Security guard Grant Burton can drive hundreds of kilometres a night on his patrols. He does this in a car that's saving his company thousands of dollars on petrol, and it's not an electric vehicle. Instead, it's powered by hydrogen. 
Our fuel bill so far has reduced by $50,000 a year. And why didn't you go for an EV? EVs we trialled, so we trialled a few EVs and we just found the re the recharging stations availability were a problem, but also the time to recharge. We need to be able to refuel at a moment's notice and be able to have a car on the road within minutes. If we had to plug in and go down the lines of recharging a car, we're looking at eight hours off the road where a hydrogen refuel for us can be done within 30 minutes drive time to and back, plus the refuel time. Grant Burton has a leasing arrangement with Toyota that costs $25,000 a year. This includes all on-road costs and unlimited hydrogen refuelling. Yeah, so obviously today you're only doing a half a refuel, so it maybe won't be five minutes, a little bit shorter. As the company's local manager of carbon policy, Andrew Willis, explains, the hydrogen is being made here at Toyota's site, using locally generated solar, power from the grid and lots of water. And it goes through a, an electrolysis process, which in turn generates hydrogen and separates the oxygen, and then we store and dispense the hydrogen. The hydrogen powers a fuel cell that's inside the car's engine, which generates power to drive it. The only emission is water vapour. Despite the apparent advantages, just six hydrogen cars were imported last year. All of them were Toyotas. Andrew Willis believes the technology is being held back because there's only about a dozen refuelling sites in the country. The refuelling infrastructure is limited. It's growing, but it's limited. So, of course, we can't introduce a car to market that can't refuel. Yet some don't believe the hydrogen hype. Grattan Institute energy analyst Alison Reeve says with hydrogen still around $7 to $16 a kilogram, filling up costs roughly the same as a petrol car. And that's a big contrast to battery electric cars, which even though they cost more up front, are a lot cheaper per 100 kilometres to drive and actually end up saving you money over the life of the car. Hydrogen cars don't really do that at the moment. And she so says that hydrogen would need to plunge in price to get more competitive. To get hydrogen at $2 per kilo, you need to be able to make electricity to make the hydrogen really, really, really cheap. And the thing is that when electricity gets really cheap, it becomes even cheaper to run your electric car. If you look at um, California, for example, they've spent a billion US dollars since 2008 subsidising refuelling stations. They've got 55 refuelling stations across, um, across the state and they have a total fleet size in the US of around 18,000 hydrogen vehicles. So even if you pour lots of money into refuelling infrastructure, I think it's just not necessarily um, going to lead to the uptake. In tandem with the states, the Albanese government is putting around $80 million towards hydrogen refuelling, which is mostly targeting bigger vehicles like trucks and buses. In a statement, a spokesperson for the Minister for Climate Change and Energy, Chris Bowen, says they acknowledge that several car brands are making passenger cars fuelled by hydrogen, which may, they say, fulfil particular roles in the future. Amelia Turzon reporting. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. I think we're all fed up with the amount the supermarkets are charging us and then there's higher rents, interest rates and power bills. And I know we're going to get a tax cut, but will we really feel less pressure? Who better to tell us than the ABC's business editor, Ian Verinder? 
Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.